Welcome to Insight, live at noon with a rebroadcast at 7 p.m. The four leading candidates for California Senate seats squared off again on the debate stage. But did anyone set themselves apart from the rest of the field? Ahead on Insight, we'll dive into how each candidate responded to big issues with just three weeks to go until the primary. Also, Sacramento's food scene has received more prestigious recognition. The homegrown culinary talent behind the Japanese restaurant crew joins us about his recent James Beard Award nomination for Best California Chef. Finally, Lunar New Year is here and we welcome Year of the Dragon. We'll learn how Sacramento's Chinese and Vietnamese communities are celebrating and what this tradition means for them. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. That's all coming up today on Insight. First, here's the news. From CAP Radio in Sacramento, this is Insight. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. The countdown to the primary is on. We have three weeks to go until voting in California ends and ballots are counted. Last night in San Francisco, the four major candidates for U.S. Senate took the stage in a primetime televised debate. Democratic Congress members Adam Schiff, Barbara Lee, Katie Porter, and Republican Steve Garvey, they all tried to differentiate themselves on topics ranging from the state's homeless crisis to the border, the economy, and, of course, former President Trump. Fox 40 anchor Nikki Lorenzo co-moderated the debate. Nikki joins us now from San Francisco, along with Laura Cordy, co-author of Politico's California Playbook. Good afternoon to you both. Hi, Thanks, Nikki. Nikki. Thanks for having us. All right, Nikki. The second debate for U.S. Senate as we head into the primary. Where do you think voters got the most out of this debate last night? You know, what's really interesting is going into this because so much has happened since the last debate and over the past couple of weeks, we really have seen the knives come out between uh, Katie Porter and Adam Schiff and really Katie Porter initiating that. We all know that after Adam Schiff, you know, dropped that ad, uh, name checking Steve Garvey as the second candidate in the race and, and Katie Porter accused him of this is her. These are her words here, boxing out qualified Democratic women. Uh, and and it just continued and it escalated from there. And, it, it, you know, Barbara Boxer came off the sidelines and decided to endorse when she vowed to be neutral. So we were anticipating that last night. And what we saw, I think, was more a more measured approach from the candidates. There was a, a little bit between Adam Schiff and Katie Porter, but not as much as we were anticipating. And And, and I really think, too, that the glove stayed on when it came to Steve Garvey. I mean, you mentioned this in the introduction to us that we're just a few weeks away from this primary and you have two members of Congress. I mean, obviously Adam Schiff is far and away the leader. He has the money, he has the endorsements and all the polling. It shows him being the leading candidate, but you have two other members of Congress who are fighting for their jobs right now. So you know, we were thinking that there was gonna be more sparks flying, but the goal of our debate was to really hone in on policy and get them to answer questions. Because as we all know, covering politics, they're great at spinning those talking points, but getting them to say something specific is that 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 is what informs voters. So as much as we didn't get those fireworks last night, I think we got some substantive discussions from them and really what they they wanted to do. You know, we were really trying to pinpoint Katie Porter, you know, what does income inequality look like? We wanted to get, you know, a specific answer on uh, Adam Schiff and does he is he in lockstep with the Biden administration? And, And I think we got some of that. Yeah, well, you and Frank Buckley, who was co-moderator, he's also with KTLA in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, you you did a great job moderating and really holding them to time. I appreciated uh, the buzzer because they'll take advantage of that time if they have that opportunity. And as you just clearly demonstrated, I mean, you have in-depth knowledge of each candidate. You've interviewed them over the years. So I feel like you could probably make an educated guess as to how they would answer the questions that you and Frank posed. Did anything surprise you last night? You know, I thought that, uh, I mean, obviously the Trump question, we, you know, that's something that Steve Garvey has been trying to dance around for a little bit. I, I was a little bit surprised that the candidates didn't go after him for like they did in, in the first in the first uh, Politico Fox 11 debate. And, and sort of, you know, that that's where Katie Porter had that famous line, once a Dodger, always a Dodger. You know, I was I was a little surprised by that. And, and I also thought another answer that stood out in you know, Barbara Lee's been calling for a ceasefire and she wanted, you know, wants a two-state solution and she's been in lockstep to, you know, there are innocent civilians when we're talking about the conflict between uh, Israel and Hamas. But 
you know, President Biden came out and he said a two-state solution is not possible without the elimination of Hamas. And she would not give a full-throated answer on something like that. So that was something that was, um, you know, a, a, a little a little surprising to me that she just kind of stood to that. Um, and, and also they, they seemed a little uncomfortable when we were talking about the age question, obviously every, you know, you're looking at president Biden, who's 81 and Donald Trump, who's 77, that that's the vibe they gave to, gave to me when we sort of asked that question and, and pressed them on, uh, you know, what, what is too old. And, and there was some, you know, reporting too that Barbara Lee was hinting that she might run for one term. And I know in the spin room last night, she said that that was misinformation, but there are reporters that have said, you know, that's what she has indicated. So, uh, you know, Adam Schiff was very, he, he, all Adam Schiff had to do was not have a moment. You know, he just had to kind of stay there and maintain his his top status. But yeah, I, I thought it was, you know, there, there were some definite moments in that where I was, sort of surprised and and there was another i believe it was a question from frank where he asked about biden's handling of the middle east and 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 adam schiff criticized the president a little bit and you you don't really see him do that ever Hmm. laura i mean as you know we're well aware you know the the democratic candidates are all colleagues in the house and they often vote in line with each other where did you see the biggest differences between them on the debate stage last night Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this has been a running theme throughout this campaign, right? How do these three Democrats from California, you know, who have served alongside each other and a lot of times been allies on various topics, how do they differentiate from each other? And I think one of the areas where we've seen the most daylight has been the Israel-Hamas war. Um, You know, as Nikki was talking about, Barbara Lee has really tried to distinguish herself as the person who called for a full ceasefire earliest. Um, We have seen uh, Katie Porter talk a bit about ceasefire, talk about the need, um, you know, to to tamp down on Hamas. Adam Schiff, uh, yeah, to Nikki's point also, I think, was, you know, very notable in supporting Israel and saying that, you know, uh, President Biden's assertion that Israel has gone too far is not exactly the way that he would phrase it. But, you know, he does oppose the the needless loss of civilian life. So I think that's the biggest issue for Democrats in this race and certainly for Barbara Lee, who has been lagging behind these candidates and is really trying to use, you know, a platform as the progressive in the race to amplify herself. Um, another area where I will say I saw a little bit of distinction is the age question. And that's something that Katie Porter has really tried to use to her benefit. Um, her colleagues are older than her, um, that her Democratic colleagues are older than her. And while all three candidates, uh, you know, praised President Biden and said that they have no problem with how he has been working in his administration, administration, excuse me, Katie Porter did say, you know, she thinks that the question of age limits and term limits. um, She said, I do generally think age limits are a conversation for all elected officials that we ought to be having. And so I think that's one of the the few areas of distinction for for Porter that she's clearly trying to play up in this race. And when it comes to the Republican candidate, Steve Garvey, Laura, you wrote a piece in Politico magazine about when Garvey was making his travels across the state, you know, getting a better understanding of homelessness. I'm curious, since you have that deeper perspective of him as a candidate, he doesn't really have a record at all as an elected official. What stands out to you about his performance and his response? responses during these debates? Did you get a better understanding of where he stands on key issues? Um, Honestly, no. Uh, And that's simply, you know, Steve Garvey, I think, has keyed into the fact that homelessness is the number one issue for Californians. And it's really something that they expect their elected elected officials to have a strong position on and have a strong plan for. Um, You know, I was with him when he was down in San Diego visiting uh, the the Alpha Project, which is, a, which is a homeless shelter. He went to Skid Row in Los Angeles and up here in Sacramento. 
he also did some some touring of the homeless camps with law enforcement. Um, but the issue here, you know, really is that Steve Garvey has not articulated how he wants to fix homelessness. And I think just saying that homelessness is a problem is not really going to set you apart in a state like California, where there's everybody agrees it's a major problem. They're looking for some answers. And uh, I think that Nikki and Frank did a really good job of pressing all the candidates to clarify their position. But, you know, Steve Garvey still couldn't say, give a clear answer to one of the basic questions, which is, you know, do homeless people deserve to be able to camp out in public places um, while they're waiting for shelter? He couldn't articulate that. And I think that's, you know, something that he's going to need to get much clearer on if he wants to be a serious contender and if he makes it to November. Mm. Nikki, what do you make of Steve Garvey being tied in polling with Representative Katie Porter, you know, um, given that he doesn't really have a record as an elected official? I mean, is it as simple as he's just kind of threading the needle as an alternative to Democrats, you know, being attractive to Trump voters, perhaps, but also being appealing enough for undecided voters? Yeah, I mean, he's really just trying to toe that line. I, I don't know how many times and how many ways we can try to ask him the Trump question, and he is just not going to answer it. And and it's a non-answer is an answer. I, I mean, I, I wish these candidates would understand that, saying, well, I'll evaluate it, I'll look at it. We know what you're saying there. And so with with Steve Garvey, it's just he's banking on the fact that he is Steve Garvey. But, you know, I'm unless you're of a certain age, a lot of folks don't know who Steve Garvey is. And so that could be the defining moment at some point. I mean, it's going to all come to turnout. And the way it's looking right now is obviously we, we have President Biden on the Democratic side, but it, it's looking like President Trump has this locked up. So does that, in the way California plays too, does that discourage voter turnout in the primary. It's all going to come down to the numbers. And so he's got to appeal. He's really trying to appeal to Trump voters, but also, you know, some of those moderate Republicans, wherever they may be in the state and, and some independents that might look up at the stage and go, OK, you know, I don't really identify with any of these people right now. And, and what else I find is interesting, too, about Katie Porter, just to bring her into this, because Steve Garvey is the outsider. and We talk about him having no record. Katie Porter is a member of Congress, but she really has, you know, been pushing this populist. I'm an outsider. I'm different. I mean, the one jab Adam Schiff kind of took at her last night was he motioned. He didn't say her name, but he said, you know, there's I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know, you trip over so many people who come to Washington and want to shake things up. Obviously, that's a line from her ad and something that she's been been pushing for a while. But but Steve Garvey, in the same vein, is just trying to hope to be an alternative and and, and appeal in a way to the Trump voters, but toe that line, because I know from speaking with sources within the Republican establishment in California, that they're really trying to put up candidates. We saw it with Lonnie Chen in the last election cycle that are more palatable, moderate Republicans that could pull over some, you know, NPP voters and, and some mod Dems possibly. I mean, I've talked to some folks and, and Laura, I'm sure you've talked to some people too, that are of a certain demographic that Steve Garvey was their hero. They loved him when he was playing baseball. And I mean, even at the time in the nineties, there was talk of drafting him to run for office then. So they're hoping that that name and, and just sort of his, you know, he, he speaks very slowly and he has this calm nature about him. And he's just trying to come across still as that warm, likable athlete and he's hoping that's going to get him past the general. And, and every single policy question you ask him, whether you know it was on the stage last night or in the times I've interviewed him, he, you know, he's like, I got to get the job first. I got to get the job first. And I had a, a Democratic operative say, hey, Nick, you know, what? I think that's actually smart. He's like, I'm talking to people, I'm learning information, but I got to get the job first. And he's like, that could work with some voters. And, and I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Well, Nikki and Laura, thank you so much for the conversation. Look forward to having you back on soon. Thanks, Vicki. Thanks, Vicki. That is Fox 40 anchor Nikki Lorenzo, who co-moderated the California Senate debate last night in San Francisco. And Laura Cordy is the co-author of Politico's California Playbook. You're listening to Insight on your NPR station, Cap Radio. I'm Vicki Gonzalez.
Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. I know I don't need to tell you this. It is pretty easy to find a great meal in Sacramento and surrounding counties at really any price point. I love showing people out of town all that there is to offer. And in recent years, Sacramento has been in the national spotlight as a destination for cuisine, as well as its chefs. Well, we can add another homegrown talent to a prestigious mix. Billy No is the founder of Crew Contemporary Japanese Cuisine in Sacramento, and he's been named a semi my finalist for Best California Chef from the James Beard Awards, which caps off a nearly two-decade-long culinary career in Sacramento, which is far from over. Billy shares what this recognition means to him. Billy, thank you for joining us, and congratulations. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I think really in order to appreciate the recognition that you just received and really just what you've accomplished over nearly two decades, you got to go way back to the beginning. You're a local. You have yes. pretty much been in Sacramento your entire life. What yes. brought your family here? Uh, I don't think they chose to, actually. Um, it was because of the, the Vietnam War. My mom was pregnant with me, and she was able to escape and luckily... Uh, got on a boat to escape. We were one of those boat people back then. Where there were a lot of those. And she was pregnant with me, and we ended up in a refugee camp in Hong Kong, and that's where I was born. And we were there for a few months, and then we were allowed to come to Sacramento. Or that's ended up in San Francisco first, and then came to Sacramento. And really planted yeah, yeah, yeah. your roots here yes, in yes, Sacramento. Yes. Did food and cooking, was it always a big part of your family? Well, I think growing up in an Asian household, it's, uh, it's always a big part, right? You always have to sit down and eat together for dinner. Uh, I really appreciate it now. Growing up, you don't think about it. You know, um, I was actually like, I would get upset, you know, <laughs> dinner time. Your parents made you sit down and eat dinner together, and you can't leave. You know, you want to go watch cartoons or whatever you're done. But they made you sit together, all eat together before you could leave. And, you know, I didn't appreciate that until later on. And, you know, we grew up very poor. They worked all the time, and for them to still be able to make a meal, it's not just like, a one-plate meal, like a, I love lasagna, but I'm just saying, for example, like a lasagna. Right? It was legit a vegetable, there's a rice, there's a fish, and there's a meat dish. It was like all these dishes, and you sit down and you ate together, and thinking about it now, like, how did they even have time to do that, you know? Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's probably because of how much they valued mm. that time and mm-hmm. how important it was informative. Yes. For, for so, you. yeah, so food was always, like, yeah, important growing up. And I think uh, growing up, too, my parents always worked in restaurants. I think they even tried opening a restaurant at one point. So I grew up around it a lot. I remember getting picked up from elementary school and sitting at the restaurant or in the office to do homework and stuff like that for a long time. So it's just always been around, but it was not ever something I dreamt of doing. I didn't think about, oh, I want to be a chef one day or, or open a restaurant. It, it just happened. Yeah. yeah. When did you start working in restaurants in Sacramento? First uh, time was just trying to get a job in high school with a work permit. So I just wanted to make money and then got a work permit during high school, got a job at Fuji's as a busboy and dishwasher. And that's off Broadway, right? Broadway, yeah. <laughs> the one of the oldest Japanese restaurants been around. Uh, they've been closed and they recently reopened. Uh, different ownership, but uh, same name. So started there as a busboy with a work permit in high school. You know, given that, you know, you just had a work permit, you're a teenager, yep. you're you're trying to make a buck, you know, I mean, I worked in, in restaurants yep. too, or, you know, at, at a store, you don't necessarily think like, oh, this is just going to be like my career and, no. my, and, my, and my passion. When did that happen for you? When did you have that spark or that idea? Yeah, absolutely not. It was just a job, right? Uh, working there, busboy, dishwasher, and then starting sushi there, actually. Um, but this was a long time ago. Sushi, well, I think Fuji is one of the most popular Japanese restaurants. Huge restaurant, small sushi bar. I don't think sushi was really popular yet until probably the no, 90s because of Makuni. So started at Fuji's, busboy dishwasher, worked up to start doing sushi a little bit. Uh, I don't think I really, it was just a job. I didn't love it. 
um, it was a job. But I think I really changed my mind when I actually I got a job at Bakuni. Very short stint. I think it was only six months, but they were starting to blow up at the time. I, I, they probably have over close to 10 restaurants now. They just opened one up recently yeah, uh, off all, Fair Oaks. All, yeah, all over. I think that time I got a job is in Roseville. And I believe they just opened had Roseville for a year and starting to plan to open more. And I had a friend working there, so he got me a job there. I went there. And I think that's when it really piqued my interest because I was going to college, Sac City, just taking classes, not knowing what I wanted to do, but just taking classes, just take classes and still working. And then when I worked there, that's when I kind of changed my mind because it was was fun. It wasn't super serious. There's no rules. Most restaurants or sushi restaurants at the time, they had all these rules, very quiet, no sauce. You went there. It was fun. Like my interview with Taro, I didn't even consider it an interview. He told me to come in. I thought I was going to be an interview. He told me to sit at the sushi bar. He was working. And he started feeding me and then asked me a few questions. And I said, oh, when do you want to start? And that was the interview. And I just looked around, and everybody looked like they were having fun. It, it was like uh, restaurants, you go to restaurants to eat, servers serve you. You can't see what's going on in the kitchen. You see what – it was like sitting at a bar. You know, bartenders have fun. They talk to you, chat, they pour you a drink. And that's how I took it. I was like, wow, these guys are having fun. They're chatting with you, making food, splashing sauce on the plates. Guys with bleach hair and bandanas. So I was like, this, this is pretty cool. And I think that's when I kind of really piqued my interest. Hey, maybe this is what I want to do. So when I worked there, that's when I really clicked, like, this is what I want to do. So I just bounced around as much as I can to try to learn as much as I can. And uh, never staying at a restaurant too long. So yeah. I think that's when the switch clicked. I mean, and the switch went like really like a full on switch when you opened Crew. I was looking at when you opened Crew. I can't believe it's almost twenty years ago. <laughs> Two thousand five is yes. when Crew opened. I mean, that's just what a trajectory. I mean, do you ever reflect back on that time? Because I believe you were like in your twenties at that time. Yes, I, w- I was a uh, twenty three, twenty four. So <laughs> I mean, do not- you ever look back on obviously not knowing what you know now, mm-hmm. but like embarking on? this restaurant with a lot of drive, but also with uncertainty as well. Uh, I had no idea where we would end up here or be open almost 20 years. Back then, yeah, 23, 24, I would think a 30-year-old was old. Uh, now, or, or restaurants being open for 10 years is long, but now we're coming up on 20 years. I can't believe that. Um, yeah, it's just amazing that we where we're at now. I mean, I will just say it was... Uh, being young and dumb, you know, just jumping into it. You better learn how to swim or you're going to sink. Just survive it, and I'm glad we survived and made it. Was your family supportive when you're like, hey, I want to open up a restaurant? Uh, I would say yes, but not in the beginning. When when I started to work in restaurants and when I uh, dropped out of college work at restaurants, my parents were pissed. <laughs> you know, they're, they're very pissed. Uh, uh, you know, they worked at restaurants, and they're like, we, we did everything we could to come to America, this and that, you could do whatever you want, and then... Uh, when I work in restaurants, like we worked in restaurants because we had to, you know, we couldn't speak the language or this and that. But I, like, I, mean, I, I liked it, you know. And then um, I think they changed their mind when I actually went to culinary school and not just like just be a line cook forever, but actually going to culinary school, coming back, talking about wanting to open my own restaurant. That's when they're very supportive of that. I mean, I, I look back to, you know, 2005 when you opened Crew, and I know I don't need to tell you this, the restaurant scene in Sacramento has changed a great deal since mm-hmm. then. Why did you decide to stick around in your hometown in Sacramento as opposed to, I don't know, moving to bigger cities like San Francisco or L.A.? I wanted to say, um, so that's a good question because I know, so talking to some of my sisters, they're very supportive of what I want to do. Like, you know, whatever you want to do, this makes you happy. And you can saw how uh, passionate I was about it. You know, the times are so different, you know. Even there's no camera phones. <laughs> there is no, no. There is no. I think there was a flip phone. There's no YouTube or TikTok, and yeah. that's like, uh, or, or you know, Instagram. So now it's so cool. Like you know, I, I talked to some of the younger generation chefs, or people. I was like, you guys have it so easy. You could hear about this restaurant that's doing amazing things halfway around the world. You go to Instagram and you pull up their page, and you can automatically see the dishes they're posting. You could go on YouTube and learn any technique now of days. Back then, you hear about this restaurant that's doing cool stuff. You're like, I gotta go make a reservation, book a plane ticket, book a hotel, you go there to eat, and you have to pull out your little notebook and you draw pictures because you didn't have a camera phone because <laughs> it was like flip phones back then, you know, just like how old it is. Yeah, yeah, they're supportive um, of that. And they mentioned uh, if I wanted to do this, why won't I go to like a city like New York or San Francisco or LA and Seattle? Because we have relatives in Toronto, New York, and all over the place. So I go, go to a bigger city where you can actually like make more money, you're going to work in a restaurant or this and that. You know, I, I thought about it, um, but it was, uh, 
I don't know. I just had a lot of Sacramento pride for some reason. I just grew up here. Uh, all my friends, you know, growing up here, hated Sacramento. Not, I wouldn't say all. I mean, but, you know, everybody loved Sacramento. But it was very different. Every graduate high school went to, uh, moved out to go to college, did their things. And, you know, even back then, the only thing that was around that time, graduating high school, graduating in 99, cool about Sacramento was, was the Kings. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and during that, that time, that, that era with Chris Weber, you know, Bibby and Peja, I mean, that's all we had going. But even during the playoffs, everybody would just call it the, this place a cow town and this and that. I don't know. I just I just had a feeling like, you know, uh, something was going to happen. This city was going to be cool and I wanted to be part of it and, and just stay and do something cool, you know. And felt like it was probably not easier, but I was like, there's so many things that during that time, like, it was just different. Going around, I would just go constantly just go out and eat and check out different cities, stuff like that. And just felt like there's so many opportunities to yeah. do it in Sacramento. You know, and that's why I decided uh wanted to stay and, and be part of that change. I knew that change was going to happen. And in the last 15 years, this city's changed drastically with this whole scene, everything. Yeah. When you opened Crew, was it just an instant hit? Like, why do you think Crew has remained a constant over, over the years, nearly two decades? Because you can't take mm-hmm. for granted that, you know, maintaining popularity <laughs> and, and, and quality is easier said than done. Um, I don't think it was instant hit. Uh, people memories say it was. I think it was just so different, right? I I didn't want to do the same thing as everybody else was doing, and and I think that's what made us popular was being different, just having really passionate people on our team that believed in the idea of being different. You know, food has been done. Nobody's going to reinvent anything. Everything's been done. You can't patent recipes. You can't do anything. But, you know, there's still that respect in the scene or whatever. Just change a couple of things and, and make that recipe your own. And I think that's one thing that we do is, you know, we don't copy anybody's stuff. Recipes are recipes. You could just literally change a few ingredients and make it your own. So just do that. You know, I feel like uh, that's what makes us different. I mean, uh, I'm not trying to put any shade on anybody, but that's why working at McKinney, they did something so cool and so good. And you could see so many restaurants that opened after McKinney literally just taking the same, same menu item and putting it on their menu and don't even change the name. I'm like, at least change the name, you know? Like, stuff like that. It's just like, a, I, I feel like we actually did things a little, little different and... You created fun. an identity. Yeah, yeah, just something different, not just another sushi restaurant that's serving the same thing that all the other restaurants are. Yeah. yeah. When it comes to the James Beard Awards, mm-hmm. does that mean something special to you, uh, getting this recognition, be, being a semifinalist? Was this something that you strived for? Or is it a bonus? Uh, I'll say it's a bonus. Honestly, the James Beard Award is awesome. I've never strived for it, thought we could even be close. I didn't even know how you could get there because it's, it's different. It's I don't know. You have to be nominated. It goes through all these things. I, I, I just never paid attention to it because I just thought it was like unattainable. Um, and especially the last few years, I think super excited about Michelin coming to Sacramento. That was such a huge, huge thing for Sacramento. And, you know, with the kitchen getting it and then Localis getting it mm-hmm. next, such big, big things for Sacramento. And uh, that was really, really awesome. You know, we've been pushing, you know, to get the Michelin Guide to Sacramento for a long time. Uh, so when it happened, that was really, really awesome. Besides the stars, you know, those two restaurants definitely deserve it. You know, the kitchen definitely deserves it. They've been doing what they've been doing and killing it for like 30 years. So they, they definitely deserve it. Um, but having all the other things, the plates, the, the bibs, the mentions was all awesome. And um, when that came out, I think I was a little bummed out when we didn't get a mention or a plate. Because there's plates, bibs, and the stars. We definitely don't deserve a star. We don't fit in the criteria for the Michelin Guide for uh, stars. Why but- is that? I, I think it's just, it's just different. Just, we're just too big of a restaurant. Right, because if people haven't been to the kitchen or mm-hmm. Localis, mm-hmm. I mean, it's 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 plated. There, mm-hmm. there are many courses. Oh, yeah. You can do wine pairings. Yep. And, and yeah, like the there are less tables. Yes. Yes, I think it's less style. But, you know, but that's why there's the, the bibs and then the plates and then the mentions. And I think I was just super bummed out that, you know, we've been here for almost two decades and doing this. And I was like, you know, we didn't even get a mention or a plate. So after that, I, I was just kind of bummed, very bummed out. So I just said, forget it. You know, like, we're, we're doing great. Team is happy. Our restaurant's busy. Our vendors are paid. There's nothing else I could ask for. Just keep pushing. And nothing else to ask for. So I think that's why I wasn't looking forward to this or thinking it was going to happen. Last Wednesday when it got announced, I was truly, truly shocked. Like, I was in bed, I was sleeping, and then my phone was just blowing up with the the text and then I, I looked and I was like 
congratulations. It was like, it started at 7.30 a.m. 7, 7.30 a.m. It's like, congratulations. I just ignored the first one. I said, like, I'll check later on when I wake up. And then there's another one, another one. I was like, what's going on? So I just question marked it, question marked it. What are you guys talking about? And then somebody just sent me the list. And then I was like, yeah, in shock. I, I wasn't uh, expecting it at all. I think that's a pretty good way uh, to wake up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a pretty def- awesome. Definitely. And I would imagine just as you yeah. ha- take a lot of pride in seeing your colleagues in Sacramento get recognized, you know, by Michelin, I know that the restaurant scene here can be tight knit. I-, I would imagine you received, you know, a lot of support following, you know, this this announcement. It was very awesome. Like it was like a it melted my heart seeing all the all the texts, and then later on that day, like all the posts and everybody was tagging and resharing things. Like I was like, oh my god, I like it's just. Uh, very heartwarming, melted my heart. And I was like, oh my God, like all the support. And when you look at the list of who are semifinalists for Best Chef in California, I mean, they're pretty much all based in San Francisco or LA. Um, you are an exception, and the other two are San Diego and Calistoga. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that this Sacramento has been gaining in recognition. I don't even say just the city, but even beyond surrounding mm-hmm. counties. Does it ever get frustrating that the focus on the best is often reserved to like the usual big cities? <sighs> It's frustrating, but it's starting to feel like it's kind of the norm, you know, because there's still other little areas missing too, right? And it's a hard job for the committee, the reviewers, whoever's going out to find. There's a lot of places it's hard, and I just feel like those areas probably get more because it's more concentrated areas of good restaurants, so it's a little bit easier. So it just because this is a hard job to go through the whole California, it's no easy feat. Yeah, so, we're huge. Yeah, you know, it's huge. <laughs> so it's frustrating, but also it's a hard job to try to include everybody. So I would imagine if someone um, obviously hears this and maybe hasn't been to Crew yet, if someone is trying out your restaurant, Crew, for the first time, eating by themselves, mm-hmm. so no sharing, <laughs> they have to go alone, what do you recommend they order? That's a really hard question because we have something for everyone. You do. You, you know, if you're a hardcore sushi eater, we have some of the best fish, best nigiri. Uh, it's even funny because if you don't eat fish, we have a burger. And <laughs> I was just going to say the burger. The <laughs> we burger get, is really you like good. It? Thank you yes. so much. We get so many jokes or people that come for the first time that, you know, I've, I've heard it and seen it firsthand where somebody sits in front of me and this is their first time they heard about it. And they look at the menu and they see the menu and then they scoff and they laugh. They're like, oh, my God, I heard this is supposed to be a good restaurant. And they're talking amongst themselves. And then I'm mean, obviously I can overhear it. They're like, they have a burger on the menu and this is supposed to be a good sushi restaurant. No, just try it. It's good. Um, there's a story to it. I didn't open the restaurant. Like, Let's put a burger on the menu. You know, it's um, the burger was something that ended up on the menu because we were doing this late night happy hour thing for industry. We called it No Reservations for my last name. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, but during that time too, it was you know uh, mentioned to Anthony Bourdain. You know, it was like a little bit after he he passed, and we're calling it No Reservations, and it was like an industry. Uh, happy hour. So the restaurant closed at 10, but we did this happy hour where everybody's getting off work. They have nowhere else to go to eat in this. So we're doing this late night happy hour, drink specials. We did a ramen special. We did a burger. So we put the burger on there. And then we did that for a little while, but it, it was really successful. But it was just taking a toll on our staff after getting beat up on a long service and then having two more hours and stuff. So, you know, we just couldn't do that anymore. Uh, so we stopped, and then we were actually getting emails about the burger, people asking for the burger. So that's when we put it on the menu, because otherwise, you know, we wouldn't put a burger on the menu at a sushi restaurant. That's how it ended up there. But, you know, it, it's been doing great. And it is something for everyone. Yeah. I mean, I love uh, I love raw fish, you know, sashimi, nigiri, like that's usually what I order. But it is nice if I'm going with yes. someone, like I think of my dad, like, you know, he, yes. he's not really a fan of raw fish, yeah. but like he'd be totally down with yes. that burger. Yes. And so you can you can have more people yeah. dine with you. You've also been a chef, I think, at like Pebble Beach Food and Wine, mm-hmm. Los Angeles Food and Wine. Mm-hmm. You've also made television appearances <laughs> as well. Do you enjoy that kind of limelight? Is it fun? Uh, I like doing the Pebble Beach food wine. We're going again this year. Like they haven't done that since two thousand nine because of the, the pandemic and all. That's just really fun. I love doing the Pebble Beach food wine, LA food wine, because it gets you out of your restaurant and you get to work with these chefs that you never get to work with normally because you know there's chefs from around the world that comes to mingle with them, to participate in an event with them, and then bring some of my staff with me to work and see this stuff because some of these things you know they they probably never could go on their own. You know. Um, it's a crazy event, you know, the tickets are very pricey, so it's really cool to bring team and be part of it. So yeah, I, I love that stuff. TV shows, I, I don't think so. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> stuff, it's a, it, it's a, yeah, it's, it takes a lot, it's a lot of uh, stress, so those those TV shows. Because you're probably competing, yes, right? Yes, <laughs> you know, you watch it, you know, it's a quick, you know, 20 minute episode, 
that's a lot of TV magic. You're there for eight, 12 hours, and you know, it's a, the most adrenaline, anxiety, and stress combined all at once I've ever <laughs> felt. So I was like, no, thank you. Yeah, I feel like there's enough of that within a, a restaurant, restaurant already. <laughs> or being yeah, a rest- yeah. especially being a restaurant owner exactly. and having to focus on the business aspect <laughs> in addition to the creativity yes. that goes on in the kitchen. The crew is not also, also isn't your only eatery. You no. know, you have Kadaiko Ramen mm-hmm. and Bar, which is near Doko off mm-hmm. K Street, Fish Face Poke Bar, which mm-hmm. is off R Street, yep. right? And then um, Crew is also at Sky River Casino yep. in Elk Grove. <laughs> and then, of course, I can't forget the pet food store, oh, yes. Healthy Hounds Kitchen. Yes. That's a lot to accomplish in less than two decades. I mean, I I don't know. If, was this always your goal or when did you start thinking bigger in this way? Um, I think right away after the first two years, we were already looking to move crew and then looking to do other concepts. Um, I, I really enjoy now is just uh, or even back then. Building teams and concepts. And also, it's hard enough to do one restaurant. And like I said earlier, very fortunate to have really good partners and team. There's no way I could do this on my own. All these other restaurants, I'm not there working the line all of them. Like, no, it's the team and the partners that help mm-hmm. us going. And I, I now, like, I'm just really loving uh, building concepts and teams. But, you know, it's still a lot of work. We have one more project coming up. But I think I'll be done after that. What is the new restaurant coming up? Uh, it's going to be, uh, we're calling it a contemporary Asian concept, contemporary Asian cuisine. But I think the basis of flavors will be Vietnamese and Chinese, the two flavors I grew up eating. So your family inspired uh, Yes, yes. Naming it after uh, my mom. Her maiden name was Mai Chu. So we're flipping it, calling it Chu Mai, because when you say Chinese names in Chinese, you always say last name first. So we're calling it Chu Mai. And it's uh, going to be a Chinese-Vietnamese restaurant, flavors, but not doing like exactly Chinese-Vietnamese food. I already had some Vietnamese friends tell me, like, we know Chu means uncle, right? So, you know, this, this restaurant sounds weird. Why are you calling Uncle Mai? I said, no, no, it's not Uncle Mai. It's my mom's name. Her last name is Chu. So, yeah, she passed away in 2020. So, you know, naming it after her, just, you know, it's a way to keep her name alive for me and the family. Yeah, yeah. I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. Um, that would have brought a huge yeah, smile to her yeah. face <laughs> after two decades of having a restaurant in yeah. her name. <laughs> Going back yeah. to the beginning for you, uh, if you come across someone who is your age, a 20-something, who wants to open their own restaurant, what advice would you give them? Or what advice do you wish you would have had? Oh, the, uh, I would say um, before going to culinary school or dropping out of college or, or, or whatever, go and just uh, work and stage in a few restaurants. Don't just stick with one. Every restaurant's going to be different. Every recipe is different. Go and try to stay no longer at a restaurant than a year or less. I mean, just get your feet wet. See if you actually enjoy it. Don't, you know, this field is different. You can't go to school and read a book and read a recipe and do a recipe two times. You need to do it over and over to perfect that knife cut, that sauce, whatever it is. You need to do it. And also you you need to work those 12-hour shifts 15-hour shifts and realize, is this what you want to do? And, you know, there's some some of us, we're, we're all crazy. All chefs, all restaurateurs, we're all a little crazy that enjoy that. So you actually enjoy it, that's when you should push and keep doing. But uh, go actually throw yourself in it first, you know, immerse yourself in it. Keep bouncing around because every place is different. Try to learn as much as you can. And then after a few spots and you realize that's what you want to do, then go for it. Or you might realize, no, oh, maybe not a chef, uh, but I love this industry maybe I could be in management or versus on the other side being a rep or brand ambassador for you know selling produce or the meat side or whatever it could still be something in the industry but maybe you don't want to be in that hot kitchen the hotline 12 hours a day or whatever it is you know yeah, yeah just, no, just figure it out yeah absolutely and this is our last question mm-hmm. it is the hardest question mm-hmm. when you are off work what do you eat do you cook <laughs> that's not hard at all that's easy very easy <laughs> no I when I'm off work, I don't want to cook anything. So uh, my freezer is full of frozen food from Costco. There's hot pockets. There's full of instant pho and ramen in the cupboards. That's a healthy uh, balance. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> um, I, I I love fast food like Jim Boys. Uh, I love fast food. I don't cook when I get off. Like we go out and eat or just eat junk food. I mean, which is not healthy, but we go out and eat a lot. I think the most cooking I did was during the pandemic and the shelter in place when you know we weren't really working the serving as much we're just doing to go food but during that time you know not working that's when i did the most cooking during that time 
I actually think that's healthy because yes. I can only imagine how much time you spend mm-hmm. in a restaurant mm-hmm. or or in the concept mm-hmm. period. It's actually nice to kind of like turn those lights off and, <laughs> and to actually that opens up time for you yes. to spend with your, your family and loved yes. ones. Yes. Yeah. Well, Billy, thank you so much. Thank it was you. a pleasure. Thank you, Vicky. Thank you. Billy No is the founder of Crew Contemporary Japanese Cuisine, along with other establishments in Sacramento, and is a semi-finalist for Best California Chef for the James Beard Awards. The winner will be announced in June. You're listening to Insight here on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We're back in just a moment. Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Insight on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. This weekend marked the beginning of a major holiday for many Asian communities— Lunar New Year. We bid farewell to the Year of the Rabbit or Year of the Cat if you're Vietnamese and welcome the Year of the Dragon. According to the latest census data, roughly 20% of the city of Sacramento's population identify as Asian, which means there are a lot of unique traditions and celebrations, but also a preservation of cultural heritage. Joining us now to talk about the significance of Lunar New Year for their communities are Rung Fong Shu with the Chinese New Year Culture Association and Tito Wong who is with the Vietnamese American Community of Sacramento. Welcome to you both. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Hi, Vicky. Big fan. Thank you. Oh, thank you for taking the time. Um, Rung Fong, I want to start with you. Uh, given that Lunar New Year this year, it's commemorating, celebrating the Year of the Dragon. What does that symbolize? What would you like people to know? I like people to know that um, uh, the Chinese zodiac, there are 12 animals, Dragon is not a real animal, it's an imaginary animal, but it symbolizes quite different from the Western culture. Western culture, dragon is bad and evil, but in the Chinese culture, it is good luck, prestige, power, authority, um, knowledge, wisdom, all the good things about it. So this year that we're celebrating coming up, the year of the dragon, is a good year for all of us because we're going to have lots of challenge, lots of good opportunity for the better for everyone. Yeah. And challenges can always be difficult, but they make us better. That's yes. How, that's how you grow. Yes. Correct. Agreed. <laughs> well, Tito, what does Lunar New Year mean for you each year and especially this one? Oh, that means a lot of work, Vicky. I mean, you can tell my voice is gone. Uh, last three days, we've been uh, having a big lunar festival at Neil Grove Park for the first time we ever done that. Twenty years in the making, so it was great. I think for us, the Vietnamese American community, lunar is really a celebration of getting together. As you know, a lot of other ethnic groups and other communities celebrate Lunar New Year, but for us, as a diaspora community, you know, it's, it's an opportunity to get the three generations to come together and celebrate our culture, our festivities, our tradition and heritage. Um, for me, as somebody who's been involved for so long, uh, it's tiring, but it's so, so well worth it and so rewarding just to get exposure from various ethnic groups and communities. Our Grove is a, a thriving and a very diverse community just to see people from all different walk of life, different groups celebrating and recognizing that, you know, the AAPI community has a voice, has an event that they can celebrate and enjoy whether it's a dragon, a rabbit, a cat, I'm not too fond on, on any of those symbolism. For us, it's community, family, celebration, solidarity, all that means a lot to us. Well, I am happy that you almost lost your voice because that symbolizes <laughs> you had a lot of fun. <laughs> and oh, yeah. given that it was 20 years in the making, um, I'm glad that you had such a great time and it was such a success. How how was it? How Kind of give us a front row seat to how it was this weekend. Oh, wow. Thank you, man. 
Becky, well, you know, Little Saigon is the heart of Sacramento for us. We we've been celebrating that on the stock on corner of Stockton Boulevard and Furbridge in Florence for a long time. Our Grove, as you know, is a growing city, very, very diverse and integrated. A bigger venue. Our communities have reached out to us and said they wanted something bigger. Um we we deliver. Obviously, our growth has welcomed us with you know open arms. Uh, the the administrative logistics uh, it's just a lot a lot of work as well as as you know it's a public park, so a lot more paperwork, a lot more vigilance and risk management and all that. But we made it through. I uh, started at nine o'clock with the parade, uh, two days of 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 entertainment, line dances, a lot of food festivities. All the channel local ch televisions were there to showcase. Over 25 vendors. I don't know what it, how to start and how to end, Vicky, but it was it's it's a blur to me, to be honest. But just to see our kids wearing our outfits and and, and be able to celebrate with the red envelopes and hearing firecrackers, fake firecrackers, not the real ones. But uh, nonetheless, it was still a lot of fun. You're talking about, I mean, of course, being part of a diaspora and having the experiences of of refugees, but. Having an event like this over the weekend, you know, is really preserving these traditions and this heritage and what this means for generations to come, for, for younger generations. Yes, yes, Vicky, very true. I mean, as you can tell, a lot of our folks, this is what, 50 years after the Vietnam War, many of us are boat people. I was an 11-year-old kid on that boat, can literally still smell that gasoline water that we drank. Um, my, most of my members are in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. The the elders are in their twilight years. They don't have a lot of time left, let alone you know being able to participate in something like this. So um, Kelly and her team, the the NorCal Chamber of Commerce, stepped up. Um, it's total collaboration from all the community-based organizations that come together and recognize that, that you know we're we're standing on the shoulders of these sacrificed veterans who fought the war and, and and chose freedom for us and sacrificed millions of lives on the way to in search for freedom. So I've never forgotten that. Um, you know I have kids my own now and 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 I'm I'm so proud, inspired to see them still acknowledge that you know that's past of the, that that they live still means something, and it's not something we're embarrassed about. You know to say that we're a boat person used to be in a something that you kind of, you know, deem as, as a fob, but now it's 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 your narrative. That's your story. You know, we're 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 resilient we're resilient and we're we're hardworking and we're resourceful. So I'm 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 thankful. I mean as you know, uh the the AAPI community is strong and vibrant. It's not just our own community. We have a very, very strong and vibrant, unique AAPI communities, and so we're proud that all of us can celebrate together. Well, Rung Fong, I know you have celebrations coming up as well, and when it comes to the Chinese community in California, I mean, it's embedded with the founding of, of our statehood. You know, you have some events coming up later this month. Uh, tell us about them. Yes, uh, our event is on Saturday, February 24th, from 11 to 5 at uh, Luther Burbank High School. It's going to be an exciting day, all day. Uh, actually, I would recommend people to go there a little earlier because our uh, lion dance will start at 10.50. So we're going to be there a little <laughs> earlier. <laughs> and we start from um, the lion dance will take us to the auditorium. We have fantastic um, performing arts show coming up. And uh, we have uh, activity outside the auditorium too, which is uh, on the campus. We have... Um, culture demonstration, children's games, such as um, Chinese calligraphy, writing, paper cutting, paper folding, uh, paper folding to make lanterns, Chinese lanterns, because the February 24th happens to be the 15th days of the new year, and that's the ending of the celebration traditionally. And at that day, we usually have lantern uh, competition, and also we will eat special food called Tang Yuan, it's a, a dumpling round inside a sesame uh, seed, sesame paste, okay, um, like all kinds of good food that we will eat during the 15 days, okay? Anyway, back to what we're going to do that day. Uh, we also have uh, children's games such as um, kick jianzi. Uh, jianzi is something that we made it ourselves uh, in the Chinese tradition. You wrap up a coin uh, with cloth, and then you put some feather on it, and you just kick it <laughs> and see how many times the kids can, can kick, you know? That's one game, and there will be, oh, there's something exciting. We have... Um, making figuring by using flour dough 
that is something wow. exciting. It's we have this lady; she knows how to do it. It's it's exciting. All kinds of figurines, dragon and um, Snow White, anything. It's just beautiful and face painting. Um, a lot of stuff, and we a have a link, stuff, and we yes. have a link on our website too. So okay, get there great. early, uh-huh. <laughs> and, yes, yeah, and then people right. can that's have right. fun yeah. the entire day. Mm-hmm. It's also the twenty seventh year that this uh, yes. festival is taking place, and when talking with Tito about just you know the cycle of generations, I mean there are people who've probably gone since the beginning, and that they now have families of their own now, and they're going to this spring festival. It must be so special. Very special. 27 years, yes. We started uh, um, the Chinese New York Culture Association started in 1997. Our first celebration was 1998, and we held at uh, Elgo Laguna Town Hall. There was just not that many people, but now we've expanded to, uh, we've went to um, California State University, Sacramento, your campus here, and then we went to Masonic Temple and went to Hiram Johnson for some years. Now we're at uh, Luther Brimman High School. And we love Luther Brimman High School because the facility is newer and the parking lot is great. Acres of parking lot. There's no problem about parking. Which means it's grown a lot in the last 27 years. Yes. And uh, uh, talking about growing a lot, um, our auditorium show tickets uh, almost sold out. So there's still some tickets, uh, but they are our fairground activity, you don't need admission tickets, so anybody can go there. But if you want to see the ticket, you got to go there earlier. We do reserve a uh, number of tickets at the window for people to purchase. If we don't reserve, we'll be sold out. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, that's good to know. I'm glad uh-huh. we're having this conversation yes. uh-huh. about a week and a half before that right, event right, so people right. can get their tickets. Yes. Uh, yes. Rongfeng and mm-hmm. also Tito, thank you so much for, for this conversation and some hot tea and honey for you, Tito. Thank you so much for the opportunity. <laughs> oh, thank you for taking the time. It was a pleasure. Rong Feng Shu is with the Chinese New Year Culture Association, and Tito Wong is with the Vietnamese American Community of Sacramento, and they are talking to us about Lunar New Year celebrations in Sacramento. And that is it for Insight Today. You can learn more about our guests as well as the event, the Spring Festival, later this month at capradio.org slash insight. You can also subscribe to the Insight podcast. If you want to reach out to us, you can send us an email at insight at capradio.org. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.